would like more information about CCC, you can visit our website at cccspringfield.org. We trust these messages will challenge and encourage you in being a faithful follower of Christ. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. We've been in our series, Serving the Creature, and we find Paul wrapping up the theme of how sin has infected the human race. And we have spent the first two weeks of the series talking about homosexuality, an infamous feature of the state of humanity, where Paul says, quote, God gave them up to the lusts of their heart. Paul is addressing a general audience, actually Gentiles, and as we move on in the passage, we realize that homosexuality is not the main theme of this passage. As we see Paul moving to other characteristics of what man's rebellion looks like with God. In fact, in chapter 2, Paul moves to the Jews who could maybe read this first chapter and say to themselves, and we could say, for our sake, religious people, and say to themselves, well, I'm glad I'm not like those folks you just talked about. And Paul says, "Uh, no, you're not getting the message. Because he precludes their objection by saying in Romans 2.1, in passing judgment, you condemn yourself. So Paul is holding up a mirror to Gentile and Jew, religious and non-religious, and this is all of society. Now, if there is any doctrine that is particularly reprehensible to self-sufficient humankind, it is the idea that men are born into sin and that they have a, a rebellion against God. I read of one person who had a new addition to his family and added this pithy little quote, F those who think a child is a sinner. Nice. G.K. Chesterton wrote, The man who denies original sin believes in the immaculate conception of everybody. End quote. Sin is not something that one is convinced by just telling them. It is something that we experience, that we see in ourselves. Being observant about the world that we live in, we can say something is wrong with the world. And it really, in my opinion, is the ultimate self-denial to deny that sin exists. Chesterton was asked by a newspaper reporter what was wrong with the world. He skipped over all the usual expected answers. He said nothing about corrupt politicians. He said nothing about greedy corporations. He was silent about street crimes and unjust laws and inadequate uh, education. What's wrong with the world, said Chesterton in two words, I am. His answer is very unpopular with a general um, population that uh, is absolutely mesmerized with their self-esteem, that pursue their own passion and self-fulfillment. Theologian Reinhold Niebuhr was fond of saying that original sin, the idea that every one of us is born a sinner, 
and will manifest the sinfulness in his or her own life is the only Christian doctrine that can be empirically verified. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, it seems plain, at least to Paul, that sin exists. But we ought not to be surprised that there are people who don't accept that notion. Now, we've learned the last couple weeks that once you take God out of the picture, it skews your ability to see reality, and certainly in this area as well. Verse 28. I'm not going to take the time to read the whole passage because um, we're running late, and so you'll excuse me. I'll just start with verse 28, and let's go. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So they rejected God as a creator. They rejected the character of God as the standard for what is good. They rejected God's authority to determine right and wrong, and they put themselves as the final arbiter. And like the atheistic nihilism of the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, they rejected God's existence and his judicial right to hold people accountable. This is an idea that Nietzsche said was pernicious, pernicious or, or, or wicked. Jeremiah writes, for my people are foolish. They know me not, the Lord declared through Jeremiah. And then he said, they, have, they are stupid children and they have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. And so a man brings judgment upon himself when he gives no place for God. Debased is a word that actually means to fail a test. When a mind is debased, it doesn't have the capacity to guide a person to make a good moral decision. Your mind then is left as an unworthy guide a person becomes morally and spiritually foolish, making decisions that make no sense. Job wrote, they say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? The fact is, is that a person can have a PhD. A person can be technically, you know, um, like computer technically proficient. They can be physically fit, but they can be a moral midget. Let us remember that we are not justified, in other words, coming to God, Christ as our Savior. We're not, we're not justified by grading our performance on the curve. In fact, Jesus said that we are to be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. And kind of answering that question. If you want to do it by performance, it's perfection. You're going to say, well, nobody can do that. Exactly. That's the point. Okay? It's impossible. God's acceptance cannot be found by our performance. It can only be found by the performance of Christ covering us and his perfect sacrifice. Because without that, we're doomed. James 2.10 actually says, if you break one of the laws... You've broken the law, period. I mean, a thief cannot stand before a judge and claim 
Um, you know, I haven't stolen most of my life. No, wait a minute. You are here on an offense for stealing. That's the problem. You broke the law. When we do any of the offenses in the list that I'm about to read, any, we stand as guilty. In an unregenerate state, without Christ, we are guilty. And even as Christians, we still sin, but Christ is our covering. Not to get away with it, but to motivate us to live a, a life unto God with our hearts free and clear. Verse 28, he says, they, and again in verse 29, who are they? Well, he gives some description of them in verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Listen, they is us. We are the topic, the actors in these verses that we're about to read. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. Hopefully this describes us before we came to Christ, right? Now the information in these next three verses is pertinent for us, kind of like how taking your blood pressure is pertinent while you're sick, okay? It reveals something about your state. It gives information that confirms that there's a problem. And reading Romans 1 without the rest of the book can be a little frightful and depressing. But as you move along in the book, you see the gospel described, God's grace is given. And then we realize, oh, that's what we were. And now this is why we need the gospel. This is why we need God's grace. So you realize the beauty and the power of the gospel. Here's the first one, unrighteousness. It's a word that means failure to adhere to moral principles or to dismiss moral principles. It was said of the early church fathers that you get the sense with them that the sky hung low. Isn't that interesting? That is that, that heaven was nearby. It was a tangible reality that impacted how they conducted themselves in their relationships or life on earth. So we could say it this way. When a person is unrighteous, the sky or God are remote or inconsequential. So here's the question. Have you forgot God? Next, evil. Perverting moral principles for their own end. The evil man worships himself to the exclusion of God and man. God has no right to speak into his life. This is where an evil man starts, but he doesn't end there. He's not satisfied until others follow him. In fact, in Greek, the titles, one of the titles of Satan is the evil one, the one who deliberately attacks and aims to destroy man and his goodness. So have you ever invited others to sin? The next is covetousness. It's the excessive desire 
of plotting more, wanting more, okay, plotting to get more. The word literally means the itch for more, okay? Now, when you covet, you can trample on others to gain something which is not your own. When Peter called out false teachers in 2 Peter, he said this, they entice unsteady souls, they have their hearts trained in greed. It's the same Greek word that's used here in Romans. Writing for the Atlantic, Michael Mechanic shared the findings of a study that was trying to answer the perennial question, does money buy happiness? Uh, researchers found that the quadrupling of a person's income basically had the same kind of an effect that having a weekend away has. The author explains that the difference between the medians of happiness at the poverty level and $250,000 a year is about five points on a 100-point scale. That, they said, is almost nothing, one researcher said. With such a small difference, in fact, one could argue that there is no practical effect of income at all. You know what that says? That means coveting is a big waste of time. That's what that says. Now listen, I'm not going to stand up here and say there aren't advantages to being rich. Because obviously, there are some with having things. But it also comes, as Ecclesiastes says, with a lot of complications. But here is what it does not do. It does not make you happy. That's a fact. Riches can be managed well, nothing wrong with it. But riches alone do not make one happy, especially for any kind of extended sense. Do I even have to ask, have we ever been greedy? Malice. It means not just doing evil, but doing it with others to sully their reputation, seeing others commit evil. Have you ever burned the reputation of another? Envy. Uh, it means spite and resentment toward the success or possessions of another. So envy doesn't just want something that somebody has. It doesn't want them to have it. Reminds me of a guy that uh, I knew over 30 years ago who told me the story that he keyed a Mercedes-Benz in the Battlefield parking lot, a Battlefield Mall parking lot. Out of envy. It's kind of weird that, you know, he tells me that kind of thing. I wasn't even a pastor at the time. I wasn't sitting as a confessional. It was just, he just came out with it. Um, envy was at the root of the enemies of Jesus. Matthew says that Pilate knew that they had handed him over because of envy. In other words, the Pharisees were envious that Jesus had a following that they didn't have. It really is a God-given gift to take more pleasure in the success of others than in your own. Have you relished wanting to have the possession of another or even their influence and then wish their demise? That's envy. Murder. Don't really need to define that one, do I? unlawful killing of another human being. It reminds me of something that Ruth Graham said when she was asked if she was ever attempted to divorce Billy. She said, divorce? No. 
Murder, that's another matter. <laughs> Have you ever wished for another person to be gone from the earth? Strife. That means heated and violent dissension. This is a person who loves to have a dust-up, loves to fight, is never going to back down, wants their way constantly. You know, peace to people like this always seem like compromise or you're a weakling. Years ago, there was a man from our church who would get so incensed at his kids' sporting events, I was called by the organizers to please sit with him so that he would simmer down and not cause such a ruckus. No commentary needed for that one. Are you always ready for a fight? Deceit. That means shrewdness to the point of being good at deception. This person is not trustworthy. They are not straightforward. They are often underhanded. Maliciousness is a person who delights in seeing others suffer. The the malicious person tears others down. You know, think about this. That could be for those who commit identity theft, spreading fake news about others, cyberbullying, stalking, malware. These are all examples of malicious behavior. Gossips. Gossip is a word referring to whispers and hushed tones. The idea is that under the pretense of secrecy, I can ruin a reputation. You know, we can stop gossip, one, by not participating, but two, insisting if this person wants to continue to talk, that the targets of their discussion join us for the discussion. That'll stop gossip in its tracks. Try that. Trust me. It'll stop it. Gossip is like barnacles on a ship that the Navy says slows a vessel by 40%. In fact, the U.S. Navy spends $500 million a year to scrape barnacles off ships. Gossip has the same effect, slowing down organizations, our workplace, families, churches. Okay, look over the list so far. Have you checked off any boxes? It continues. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Slanders is like gossip, except the person who slanders does it publicly, boldly, out in the open. Uh, They make public accusations and broadcast their attacks on another person to ruin a reputation. Isn't this the use for a lot of people of Facebook particularly of political rivals? Have you publicly run down another person? Next is haters of God. This is characterized by dislike and antipathy toward God. This often starts 
when people equate a bad experience with God. This is a story I've, I've told before, but I remember in teaching one of my philosophy classes when I was at OTC that <clears throat> we were in philosophy and you talk about the existence of God and students were having questions and uh, there was one girl, it was actually an older lady, who basically screamed out, why do we always have to talk about God? Like, whoa, hold your horses. Two or three students said, would you shut up? I'd never experienced that before. So after, after the class was over, later in the day, I called up the student and I said, hey, what's going on? And come to find out, she had taken her daughter to a church. The daughter had a negative experience, and so she equated that negative experience of her daughter with that church to God. And this is how a lot of people end up. They have a negative experience in life or a church or whatever, and that equates to God. They become a hater of God. It's always struck me as a little odd of, of atheists who claim to hate God an item that they don't believe in. How can you hate something that doesn't exist? It's a rather odd proposition to hate something that's not real. Um, Paul says that such hate comes from not wanting anyone to uh, inhibit a self-indulgent lifestyle. I want to do whatever I want to do. And I don't want anybody stopping me. That's what the Apostle Paul says is the root of much of that hate. Insolent, that's a word we don't use often. <clears throat> this is a person characterized by offensive, disrespectful acts or statements. This is a person who delights in making others feel small. This is when you cut down the boss or parents or another authority. Have you ever proclaimed your superiority over an authority? Haughty. That's a person characterized by feelings of unwarranted importance and overbearing pride. James uses the same word when he says in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, we're to take a humble posture with people. I made this statement to uh, Jason Quartz when we traveled to Cuba a couple weeks ago. Then we were with these leaders from Crew, And it was so interesting to me with the 20 or so people that, that, that we were with. And I don't know that I've ever had this happen, at least not to this extent. Almost in every conversation that I had, People were asking me questions about me, like, well, now tell me more, and you know, how do you feel about this, and blah, blah, blah. And I remember when I got to my bedroom that night, I go, that was so weird. Because, in, you know, you see this mostly in all your uh, relationships, I'm sure you can find it, most people just talk about themselves. <laughs> you rarely have the kind of friends that will ask questions about you and say, you know, well, tell me more about this. No, how, how are you really doing? You know, I want to hear more. It was rare, but it was really something to behold, something that uh, said, hey, we're humble. We're not the center of the world. And they genuinely wanted to get to know other people. A haughty person doesn't do that. A haughty person doesn't care. They, they just want to make themselves the center of everything. Boastful comes after that. They're not only haughty, 
but they make a habit of letting others know of their superiority and they exalt themselves. They shine the light constantly on themselves. David Brooks, the author, calls humility the new pride. It's like the president of the European Central Bank who said this, I was humbled to be awarded an honorary degree by the London School of Economics earlier this week. Thank you so much for this prestigious honor. Listen, humble bragging isn't very humble. We've all done this when we exalt ourselves. Then he says, inventors of evil. This is a person who takes great mental effort to come up with morally objectionable behavior. The Roman historian Tacitus described one of Nero's more elaborate parties, which he said he would do often. And I quote, the festivities were held on a small lake populated with exotic birds, fish, and other animals imported for the occasion. Guests were floated out on rafts to be lured in one direction or another. On one shore were brothels crowded with noble ladies. On another, naked prostitutes enticed the guests. As darkness descended, torches were lit, and the groves and buildings filled with song and laughter. And then, the historian said, Nero polluted himself by every lawful and lawless indulgence, end quote. Have you ever planned in your head how you're going to execute evil? Listen, maybe you hear a couple of these and go, well, yeah, yeah, I'm thankful that's not like me. Well, here's some more. We're not done yet. Uh, Disobedient to parents. Okay? I I think with a lot of these, you might say, well, I don't see so much now, but that was certainly who I was. Fair enough. Uh, This refuses to humble yourself before your parents, especially when when asked to do something. It's an authority issue, right? Now, some may feel like the problem is certainly worse now with the kids now, right? One critic said this, what is happening to our young people? They disrespect their elders. They disobey their parents. They ignore the law. They riot in the streets inflamed with wild notions. Their morals are decaying. What is to become of them? You know who wrote that? Plato in the 4th century. (laughs) Okay? Apparently, sin is in every century. Have you ever been disrespectful to your parents? Next, foolish, verse 31. It means without understanding, lacking the ability to understand the meaning or importance of something. The fool ignores wisdom. They don't want to be told anything. They continue in their own way. Proverbs 29, 11 says, a fool gives full vent to his anger. When's the last time you rejected wisdom? Didn't want to hear it. Faithless. That's someone who does not see themselves bound by any covenant or commitment. Can also be translated senseless. Now, marriage is an obvious illustration of this. Uh, We can lose the heart of the covenant and its purpose in marriage. And when we think of the primary purpose of marriage being to get our needs met, you won't go long in getting dissatisfied. But as a covenant with God, 
Marriage has the purpose of exhibiting the gospel, uh, Ephesians 5, the love of God by exhibiting this to others. It's a gospel reflection. So when one quits on marriage because their needs are not being met, they are announcing to others that God's love, God's grace is insufficient. They see no connection between God and earthly obligations, except God will come up when he's to serve them. God is a figurehead for their own ends, not a sovereign being that we serve, the creator. You know, Harvard was started as a school to train pastors. In fact, did you know that the name Harvard was named after a pastor, John Harvard? Greg Epstein was voted president of the 40 Harvard chaplains a couple years ago. Chaplain, president. Epstein is an atheist. Now, he no longer serves as the president, but the point is, no real connection with God was needed, even for a chaplain. Have we dismissed a connection with God in our relationships with other people, in our commitments on the earth? Next is heartless. It means lacking in the affection of others, especially the natural affections of family members. Turning your back on family relationships, such as that of a parent who abandons a young child, or a grown child who abandons her, uh, his or her aging parents, or a spouse who allows their heart to grow cold toward a mate. This describes a person without natural affection except for themselves. Who have you grown cold toward? Lastly, aren't we glad there's an end to this? Ruthless. Ruthless. It means showing no mercy. These are people who take delight in inflicting mental and physical pain on others. Machiavelli, the Renaissance writer who wrote The Prince, touted the need for political leaders who were ruthless, who rejected empathy, who employed unscrupulous people. And he felt from a practical perspective, Jesus' life was an outright disaster. He felt that Jesus was a gentle soul, but he was trampled upon and, and humiliated, disregarded, mocked. In fact, he said that Jesus was the history's greatest loser. See, ruthless people really have no care for others. Principles don't drive them. It's their own agenda, their own ends. They only care about power and having their own way. Let me ask you this. When is the last time you have failed to honor another person to get what you wanted? Can happen in a marriage too, right? Verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Well, we read earlier in chapter 1 that all men are without excuse 
because through nature and the conscience, every person knows that there is a God, that there is a moral order. But they work hard to suppress this truth. They reject their creator, and they reject the instructions from the creator. Part of their self-inflicted consequences is to live in eternity without him. That's spiritual death. Isaiah writes, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. It's interesting that there's a species of ants in Africa that build its nest, you know, in deep subterranean tunnels where its young and its queen live. And although they may be great distances from the nest foraging for food, worker ants of this species are able to sense when the queen is being accosted and they become extremely nervous and even uncoordinated. If she's killed, they become frantic and rush around aimlessly until they die. Is that not a picture of Romans 1, a fallen man? In his sinful rejection and rebellion, he cannot function properly, and he's senseless without God. He's destined only for death. And man reaches the low water mark of depravity when he heartily applauds those who also sin and encourages it. To delight in those who do evil is a sure way to become even more degraded. George Bernard Shaw once said, no nation has ever survived the loss of its gods. We must realize our problem of sin before we understand our need of the gospel and its power to bring about new life and forgiveness. The gospel, listen, offers more than just forgiveness. It's a key to reestablishing God's intended order, the function of creation. I think we could say with Paul, woe is me without Christ. That's, that's the shortened version of this. But in Christ, I find protection. That's the rest of the book of Romans. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to the Christ Community Church podcast. We hope today's message gives you encouragement and hope. If you would like more information about the church, you can go to cccspringfield.org.